Good morning, everyone. We enjoying today so far? Excellent. Good, good, good. Uh, we are in a series where we are looking at how to be thankful, which is totally different than being thankful. Completely different idea. Being thankful just simply means that you have gratitude and you're being kind to someone and you're kind of paying them back for a favor. Being thankful is living your life each and every day so top-heavy with an understanding of gratitude and grace and amazement at God's blessing that you have no more room to have thanks in your life. And to live in a way like that is, uh, is achieved ultimately in heaven. Ultimately in heaven, but we can taste it and we can exist in that reality even today, living in a way that's being thankful. So we're not doing a Thanksgiving series. We're doing a thanks series and determining how best can we have the fullness of thanks with us each and every day. And last week we saw a key element in having that thanks overbeaming and overflowing in our lives is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Without a relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot have that type of thanks that God expects of us. We can't live in a way that elevates others and takes away from our own importance. We can't live in a way that gives to others out of gratitude without a relationship where we understand what God has done for us. And God has done an amazing amount for us, has he not? I'm just talking just the spiritual side of things, forgiving us, redeeming us, putting us in a new family, adopting us into his household, giving us the precious promises of eternity and joy here on earth. Amazing how he would lavish that type of love on people like us for no other reason but I love you, he says, expecting nothing in return. And to live in light of that relationship begins the journey of having thanks as part of our nature and character. That is a good goal to strive for, and that's what we are doing through this series, finding out how do we strive to be thankful throughout the entire day, all of our lives. And today we're going to look at a passage that is not going to immediately tell us about thanksgiving. It's not going to tell us about thanks, but it's going to talk about contentment. And that contentment is the basis of our relationship, and that relationship with Christ brings us contentment. And it's the key to being thankful today. And we're going to find that passage in Luke chapter 1, and, or excuse me, Luke chapter 3, and you're going to say, oh, Tim, that's about John the Baptist. And you are right. It is about John the Baptist because he has a message for us on how to live thankful, completely thanked lives with contentment. Now the passage, and, and we're just going to look at uh, 20 verses, only 20 verses in Luke chapter 3. Uh, and uh, in order to get done with that in a half an hour means I'm going to have to talk very quickly. But we're going to get through this. In the very first part of chapter 3, the setting is John is starting his public ministry. And his purpose, his goal in life was to simply let people know the Messiah is coming. And it starts out in verse 1 and verse 2 to give us some historical context 
It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, who was obviously Roman emperor, uh, and the 15th year of his reign would have been 31 AD. So we know the specific year that he started and the specific year that he died. And so in the 15th year of his reign, it was 31 AD, according to our calendar. Of course, they didn't have 31 AD back then, but in their calendar, this is, this is how we define it, 31 AD. So it was roughly a little less than 2,000 years ago. So during Tiberius Caesar Augustus's reign, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, okay, we, that's, that's the name we know, Pontius Pilate, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, oh, we've heard about Herod, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Atyria and Trachinosis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, these were governors. These were just areas surrounding Jerusalem, and Luke is giving us the historical context of this is who was in leadership politically, and this is the year that all of this started to happen because this is the time where Jesus started his public ministry, and we know when he started his public ministry, it was 31 A.D. So during this time, uh, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, uh, and these are the high priests during the time when Jesus was brought on trial, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. So God, at this specific date and time, with these historical figures in place, went to John and said, now's the time for your message. That's what it means, the word of the Lord came to John, meaning, okay, God put this on his heart, and John had to go preaching and teaching what this message was. And so, verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism, really quickly, is not a New Testament concept. Baptism was there all the way in the Old Testament. It was a common way in which people showed the rest of the world that you are now following the Jewish faith. It was two things that they included by this time that Jesus was born. It was baptism and circumcision for the males. But baptism was there. It was a rite of passage. So it's not unusual that John would be baptizing. That was a common practice within Judaism. But this is a totally different type of baptism. It's not a baptism saying I'm ushering into Judaism. It's a baptism that's ushering us into new life with God, a relationship with God, not a religious event. And so we went into the countryside of Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message is you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, 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 because in that repentance you will be granted forgiveness. There will be a relationship now with God when you repent. And repentance is nothing more, although I'm trying to make it sound simple, but it's very hard. Repentance is nothing more than turning your back on sin. It means a 180 degree difference. So if I'm walking this way in sin, my goal is to walk this way in the newness of life. So instead of doing this, I now do this. I do what God wants, not what I want. So repentance is making that physical change in your actions and your thinking to adhere to what God has to say. So it's repentance and forgiveness that John is talking about. He's talking about obedience to God and at the same time, forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful message. Obeying God and realizing that in that obedience I fall short. How do I make up that difference? It's forgiveness. It's when God says, I look at your account, and I see that you have sinned against me. 
but I will not hold that sin against you. I will forgive it. I will wipe it off the books debt-free as if you have never sinned before. That's the message that John is preaching. He is preaching to anyone and everyone that will hear it. He's not in the public square. He's out in the wilderness. He's out by the Jordan River. He's not in the temple. He's where everyone walks by, and he's preaching and teaching this message of repentance and forgiveness, the message of Christianity. He moves on and says in verse 4, as it is written in the words of the Isaiah the prophet, so John's message and his work is not just something he came up with, but God had predicted it long ago. He said, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So the message of John was to make clarity available to the people. Clarity in the message of what God expected of them and what God provided for them. What does God expect? God says in many places, what I expect of you is what? Be holy for I am holy. He expects holiness. He demands holiness. He demands perfection. How many of us have achieved that? I'd be happy if I went like five minutes. Five minutes in any given day or year of my life to be holy and perfect in and of my own character and ability. But God says, holiness is my standard, and you can't make it. But not, but you don't live hopelessly in that inability to live holy. I'm going to give you hope. And hope is not in a formula of obedience. Hope is not in a rule or ritual or regulation. Hope is in Christ. And so John's goal is to kind of just level the playing field and say, listen, you think you can live a holy life. You think this, 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 this makes you holy. Over 600 laws Judaism taught at this time on how to live a holy life, and not a single person could do it. And so he says, all of this is gone. All of these traditions, all these expectations, all these extra rules, they're wiped clean and there's only one path to God and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone, through repentance and forgiveness of sins. So he's talking about clarity. John's goal is to bring clarity to the message of God, the message of hope, the message of salvation. And that beautiful verse 6, and all people will see God's salvation. doesn't say everyone's going to be saved, but everyone is going to see salvation laid bare. Now, he's talking specifically about seeing Jesus Christ. He's the one who John baptizes. He's the one who God blesses, and God puts Jesus on that track of teaching, preaching, and ministering to those who deeply know in their soul that they need God that they can't do this on their own. And so John wants to make Christ clearly visible. Clearly visible. And in the end, that's what each and every one of us is called to do. To make Christ clearly visible to the world around us. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's what it means to be a witness, an ambassador, a missionary. It is to make Christ clearly seen in our daily lives. 
So it would be a really good question to ask yourself right now, do the people that know me the most, usually my family, do they clearly see Christ in the way I treat them, in the way I talk to them, in the way I behave around them, in the way I act? Can people clearly see Christ in your life? Is that the first thing they notice? Is it puzzling to them? Like, how, what is this difference about you? It's not morality. It's not a set of rules. It's not attending church on a Sunday morning. What's different about you? You can clearly see Christ. That's our goal. And John's message was, I want Christ to be clearly seen. He continues in verse 7. Luke gives us more context of what's happening here. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Okay, John, you have not read the latest books and seminars on how to grow a church, but it's not starting off with, you brood of vipers, you mean-spirited people, you poisonous liars, you thieves and adulterers. Thanks for coming today. John, that's not how you grow a following. You grow a following by telling them, you are indeed very special. You are special. And did I mention you are special? You are so special. We are honored and we are privileged to have you in our presence because you are special. You are special. You are special. You are special. Now, indeed, we are all uniquely created by God in his image, so yes, that does make us special, but not in the way the world likes to butter you up and just give you accolades and pats on the back and make you think that you are the best thing since sliced bread. We're sinners. That's how Scripture describes us. In fact, Scripture describes us even more than just sinners. Describes us as, without Christ, we are enemies of God. Not friends with God. Not on the way to being friends with God. We're enemies of God. At war with Him. Because we can't live holy lives. Because we have selfishness. Because we do indeed sin and miss the mark of what God requires of us. And because of that nature and character of our sin, there's only one outcome if we're left to ourselves. Without God's intervening grace and mercy awakening our eyes to see the gospel, there is only one thing that is our destiny. It's hell. One destiny without Christ. And so John was here to switch that message of obedience equals holiness to faith in Christ equals holiness. Only through Christ. But he starts out by saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? What was the coming wrath that you think John was talking about? It wasn't Rome. Rome was already there. Rome was going to stay in charge for another several hundred years. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't some outside force to destroy Rome in Judea. What was the coming wrath? Eventually their death. Each and every one of us faces that judgment day with Christ either with him on our side as our advocate, as the one who pleads our case, or we're against him trying to plead our case against God. 
Who warns you to escape the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he says. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John, that is not how to win and influence people, especially Israelites. You don't dish Abraham in front of them. You don't tell them that their relationship with Abraham means nothing, but indeed before God, it really means nothing. Your heritage, your lineage, your family, it doesn't gain you any credit before God, John says. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lines back to Abraham. Now, Abraham was a great man of faith, also failed many times and showed himself to be a sinner in front of God. Lying, deceiving, cheating. That's part of Abraham's character. Yet God loved him and forgave him and brought him into a relationship because God wanted to, not because Abraham deserved it. And so to say, oh, I'm of Abraham, was a big deal to the Israelites. A big deal. Such a big deal that they didn't care about their own repentance and obedience to God because they felt they had a get-me-into-heaven free ticket. When God says, why should I let you into heaven? The Israelites said, oh, because I have the same genetics as my father Abraham. And I can trace my lineage back through my fathers and my mothers to that First father of the faith, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and maybe even Moses and Aaron and some of the other great warriors of the faith, David, and the other kings and judges. But John says, God says, your lineage, your ticket that you're counting on to get you into heaven won't matter. The number of times you attend fellowship with other believers in the context of a church service will not get you into heaven if you have a hundred tickets or a thousand tickets or, shocker, no tickets. It doesn't matter how many times your cart has been punched on how many times you volunteered in the nursery. It doesn't matter how many times you have taken an ornament off the angel tree and gotten a gift. God doesn't count those type of things when it comes to enter into fellowship with me and enjoy my salvation. It's not based on how many punch cards you get and how many tickets you cash in. It doesn't count what nationality you are, what skin color you are, what language you speak, what time you lived, how many times a day you read your Bible. God does not count those as acts of holiness. What he counts as acts of holiness are moments of perfection in your life. And all of a sudden, the playing field becomes clear and the playing field becomes even. That there are none righteous. No, not one. Then how do we escape the wrath to come? How do we escape this penalty due to our sin? How do we move from being a brood of vipers to a child of God? How does that take place? If it doesn't take place through our effort, how does it take place? If it doesn't take place through doing this and not doing that, how does it take place? And we've seen this many times before, and we've talked about it many times before. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is super clear and says, it's by faith. 
Faith believing that God is who He says He is and Jesus Christ is who He says He is. And He accomplished what He said He was going to accomplish, which is to offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sin, to put Himself in our place. And for us to take His place, holy, righteous, and pure. It's a transaction where God moves us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light because of what Jesus accomplished. And John is here to make that message clear. He says it doesn't matter if your father is Abraham. It doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. It doesn't matter when you were baptized. It doesn't matter how many times you take communion. It doesn't matter how many times you serve. It doesn't matter what you can put behind your name as far as what you've done. None of that means a hill of beans when it comes to entering into heaven based on holiness. John says there's a time coming, coming soon. I think this is the coming of Christ right here. When John says that judgment is about to begin. Separation between those who love God and those who don't love God is going to begin. The axe is right there at the bottom of the tree. It's ready to chop it down. And are you going to be found fruitful? Are you going to be found righteous? Are you going to be found obedient to God? Having faith in Him, first and foremost? And so the natural question arises from a people who has heard this message, from a people who once thought everything they do gets counted on a punch card and gives them free entrance into heaven, all of a sudden they are, uh-oh, what do we do? Because I thought doing this, 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 and this was going to get me into heaven. If that's not going to get me into heaven, what can I do? And that's exactly what they say in verse 10. What shall we do then? Ask the crowd. Normal question. Logical question. If all these things don't count as credit with God, how do I get credit with God? That's a natural question. And I'm sure they were all asking this because we know from other passages that religious leaders were coming out. Religious leaders were getting baptized by John and listening to his message. It was radical in that day. It was fresh. And dare I say, it was the Holy Spirit bringing conviction upon them, making their hearts ready for the message of true grace and mercy and tenderness that Christ gave to those who knew they were sick. The great physician. What shall we do? How many times that's been asked in Scripture? How can we then be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, how can we be saved? Well, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You're not in a desperate, hopeless situation. And that's John's message right here. It says, and John answered and said, I'll show you what this heart of repentance looks like, a genuine fruit looks like. And he makes it super clear. He doesn't just simply say, have faith. The number of times I've heard and I probably have said, well, you need to have faith. Can, can you touch faith? Can you, can you touch it? Can you feel it? Is it easy to determine, do I have it or not? It's super hard. Let's be honest. It is super hard to just simply say, have faith. I mean, it's easy to say, very hard to relate to and very hard to understand because it's, it's immaterial. It's something that happens inside of us so we can't see it, taste it, feel it. We, we know if it's there based on 
how we act, how we think, how we speak, what we do. And so John, instead of just simply saying you have to have faith, shows us specifically what saving faith begins to look like. He says, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and any who has food should do the same. So, John, you're saying I shouldn't hold on to earthly possessions as my confidence in this life. No. If you have it and you have someone in need and you see that and you have opportunity to give, you give. Not if you have five shirts, you can give one. Not if you have plenty of food, you can give a little. But if you have and someone doesn't, share with them. Share with them. And you begin to see that a relationship with Jesus Christ begins to bring contentment. And if that relationship is real and faith is genuine and it is growing and is maturing our fruit and our maturity, all of a sudden, holding on to what the world values as most important, to the believer, to the Christian, to the child of God, eh, whatever. I can't take it with me. I'll share it. It's a heart of confidence that someone has in relationship with God. And he even says this. He says further on, even tax collectors came up to be baptized. Really? I mean, we're talking about the scum of the scum, right? And we've, we've seen before that a tax collector was never paid by the state. The way they made money was charging you extra. So instead of going to the store and the store getting money for uh, whatever the product is and charging tax, they'd charge you more because that was how they got their income. See, they paid Rome to be a tax collector. And once they became a tax collector, they could charge you whatever they wanted to, whatever they felt they could get out of you in order to make their living. And so tax collectors were despised because not only did they collect money for the state, but you knew if you got a bad tax collector and he came to you and charged you an extra 100%, there's nothing you could do. He had the law behind him, and he would take you to the cleaners. He swindled you out of your money with the force of law. So the tax collectors came to be baptized. They were getting cut to the chase and said, Teacher, they asked, what should we do? John says, don't collect any more then you are required to, he told them. Don't steal from people. Don't take advantage of people. Don't lord your power over them, manipulating them, scaring them to get more out of them. Collect what you're supposed to, and that is it. Wow, that takes a lot of confidence that God's going to take care of me. It takes a lot of confidence that God is going to help me through this life, if I'm not doing it myself, if I'm not in control, if I'm not gaining power and wealth, who's going to take care of me? And the heart of faith says, God will. God will take care of me. I'll do my duty and responsibility. I'll still work. He doesn't say stop being a tax collector, stop working, and just pray that God will bring you food. No, work, but don't take advantage of people. Be honest in your work. He goes on and says, and then soldiers, verse 14, asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. 
How's a soldier to make money then? How are they supposed to get ahead in life? Trust God. Put your faith into action. Stop abusing your power. Stop taking advantage of people. Stop exhorting, uh, extorting people. Do your job and be content with your pay. Key in a relationship with Jesus Christ is contentment. And contentment and being full of thanks go hand in hand. You can't have a life that is full of thanks, full of appreciation and gratitude, if you are always wanting more and hoarding it and scared of losing it. That's a real fear, isn't it? Scared of losing what you already have. And so you put hedges of protection around it. And you tell yourself, well, I can't give to the needy. I mean, these are uncertain times. Certainly God doesn't expect me to give to the needy during uncertain times. I, I don't even know where there was a time that was certain what was going to happen the next day. Has there ever been a day that was absolutely certain what's going to happen tomorrow? Have you ever been absolutely certain what's going to happen tomorrow at any time in your life? You had an idea what's going to happen. The sun's going to rise, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to bed. The sun's going to set. Oh, how presumptuous of us to think we know it's going to happen the next day. We always live with uncertainty, but the difference is we aren't gripped by fear because of uncertainty. We're gripped by loving when we have an opportunity, giving when we have an opportunity, serving when we have the opportunity in front of us. And if God gives us a tomorrow, it all starts all over again until he comes back for us or we go to him. And so John is very clear in saying, be content. Each and every one of you, regardless of how you raise your hand and say, what about this though? And what about this? And what about that? John answers it all the same way. Show your faith to be real in outward ways. That's exactly what James said throughout the entire book. You say you have faith, this immaterial thing inside of you? Then show me. Show me your faith. And you show your faith by the fruit in your life. And not just by giving away stuff, but how you hold on to the stuff that you have. How much trust and confidence you have in it. John continues in this text, and then we're going to move on to the very last part. People were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John's preaching a totally different thing than what they're getting in the temple, what they're getting in their synagogues. They're, he's awakening something. It's starting of a revival that, that God is doing something fresh and new in this one individual. He's a prophet! Of course, the Holy Spirit is with him. He is speaking God's words and God's people. Even if they are just subtly out of whack with God, they are, they're in tune with it now. They're dialed in, looking at their own hearts, going, but what about me? How can I be saved? How can I show my faith? How can I show my confidence in God taking care of me, trusting in what I have? And so they're starting to think, I wonder if John is the Messiah. Verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Life is going to be the Holy Spirit and fire. Two illustrations that God uses to show his anointing on an individual. God's anointing. He, he's going to come with power. 
And He's not going to baptize you with just merely water as a symbol, but real change is going to happen. Real change is about to happen. And His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into the barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, when Jesus presents His message and when the message of Jesus Christ is presented even today, it divides. The message of Jesus Christ is not a message of unity. It's a message of division in this way. You either believe in Jesus Christ or you will perish. There is nothing more divisive than truth and error. Right and wrong. There's no gray area of middle common ground. It is you either believe in Jesus Christ or you are damned. There's only two options. There's no safe middle ground where you're going and escape through all this and not take sides. There is no side taking. It's one or the other. You can't remain neutral or a Switzerland or a UN peacekeeping force. There is none. It's either you're for God or you're against Him. And when Christ brings His message that He must be believed in, He leaves no one wondering where you stand. And I think He's using these messages about uh, the winnowing fork and dividing things and the threshing floor and unquenchable fire to really speak to the Israelites. In this case, John is very clearly speaking to the Jews of the day. Don't have confidence in your punch cards and your tickets. That's not going to matter when Jesus comes. What's going to matter is are you on His side or are you taking your own side? Are you with Christ or against Christ? And he continues and says, verse 18, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to him. In John's mind, in Luke's mind, in God's mind, all of this is good news. Oh, but Tim, he started out with talking about brood of vipers, and he's really slamming them. Where's love? The whole message is love. Do you not see the idea that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is love. It is love when you tell someone they are going to hell without Christ. It is not love when you say, you know what, it's going to be okay. As long as you believe wholeheartedly in what you believe in, you're going to be okay. Or even worse, you say nothing out of fear that you might offend them. I'm not saying that we have to act like John the Baptist and call everybody a brood of vipers and tell them they're going to burn in hell. But there are times where you have to be clear and straight with people and say, the truth of the matter is, without Christ, when you die, there is no hope. No hope. And you will be entering into an eternity of misery forever and ever and ever. And so it is indeed good news to know and to say you can get out of that destiny by turning your life over to Christ. Believing what He said, believing who He is. And John clearly says, and it will be evidenced by how close you hold on to the stuff you call mine. It's mine. And then uh, the rest of the verses go on to say, um, 
in verse 19 and 20 of that chapter of Luke 3. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, because of his marriage uh, to Herodias, his brother's wife, that is Philip, and the other evil things that he had done, Herod asked uh, this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. Eventually, he would behead John because John kind of picked on the fact that Herod, who thought he was everything to the Israelites because he was protecting them from Rome's power, kind of that buffer, and thought that uh, he deserved respect. He was called to the carpet that his own sin was on display, and it was well known that he committed adultery with his brother's wife. Herod didn't like it, and he had the power of the sword, so he arrested him, and eventually John would be martyred. Lesson in that is that sometimes when you speak God's truth, it's not a fairy tale ending for you in this life. Sometimes you have to pay with your life if you're going to speak the truth in love. Sometimes you pay with everything you own, including the breath and heartbeat, sweat, tears, and life. Do you think for a moment, if John had the choice to rewind it for a moment, that he would have left Herod alone? Do you think John regretted that he spoke the truth? I mean, I, I don't know John, and I can't read John's mind, but I have seen plenty of testimonies from other believers who have said that standing up for the truth in that relationship with Jesus Christ has never been second-guessed in their heart, even when they were turned over to the lions and the fire and death. It's worth it, worth it to speak the truth and to show that everyone has hope in Christ. Turning real quickly, because there's another New Testament passage in 1 Timothy that helps us put some of these ideas of contentment and being thankful into very concrete terms. And, and Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 10, very quickly. Um, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, contentment being fine with what you have and not hoarding it and not envying others. Envy is the destroyer of being full of thanksgiving. Envy, envy and covetousness and being unhappy with what you have is an enemy to having a thankful life. So godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Uh, I don't know what it was, sometime this week or last week, we watched a show on Netflix about an Egyptian tomb. And I didn't pay attention to the whole thing because it wasn't in English and you had to read the subtitles and oh, it's a lot of fuss, okay, to read subtitles. But the whole point was these people in Egypt were super excited to go into this dead man's tomb that had been dead for 3,000 years and guess what was in the dead man's tomb? The dead man all of his family, and a lot of dusty, old, decaying stuff. He took nothing with him. Although he loaded up his tomb with all of this precious stuff, the end result was he turned to bone and ashes. Well, he's mummified, but just decayed. It was all gone. Even the writings on the wall that were etched in stone were decaying. 
You can't take anything with you out of this life as far as possessions. What you can take is your relationship with God. And so Paul says, you can't take anything out of this world. Can't take any, didn't bring anything into it. Can't take anything out of it. But if we have food, clothing, we will be content with that. Well, he also means several cars, uh, a cabin out in West Cliff, um, a retirement income, and lots of vacation, and of course the newest iPhone. And Paul leaves out a lot of things here, doesn't he? No? It says food and clothing, be content with it. Whew, that's a hard lesson to demonstrate my faith. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plague people into ruin and destruction, or plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kind of evils. Not money, but the love of it, the envying of it, the jealousy, the discontentment is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. To take home today, I want to remind us that we need Jesus to satisfy our deepest needs. Augustine, who if you remember several weeks ago, we saw his key to the Christian life is to omnia ad gloriam de referendum est, refer all things to the glory of God, that my life is designed to bring God glory and I am designed, made to reflect God's glory. He says, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Speaking of Jesus, if you find yourself unrested, if you find yourself disrupted, if you find yourself unsure of what the future will bring, there is one solution to it. Running back to Jesus saying, be my all in all. Show me that I can be satisfied in you. Show me that everything I need is found in a relationship with you, with faithfulness. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for not just simply putting us in this world saying, go for it, but that you show us, Lord, through your mercy and your tenderness that a relationship with Jesus Christ fulfills my soul and my needs. Help us, Father, to be content and to live in a content way to give to others, not in order to get a ticket or a punch card, but to demonstrate that our faith is real and genuine. Father, let us not hold on to the things of this world, but let us hold on to that relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name all of God's people said,